All right. Our scripture reading this evening is going to be Revelation 2, 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are those, some among you who are hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual adult immorality. Likewise, you have, also, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword in my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some, some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to those who receive it. This is the word of God. This evening... I want to take you on a journey, before we get, jump into the text, to sort of imagine what it would be like to receive this letter and understand a little bit about Pergamum. This is an interesting city. Uh, you're living in actually what was maybe the most famous church in Asia. Um, I actually have a map here. Uh, we've been looking at these different churches. So far, we've covered Smyrna two weeks ago, if you remember. It was, uh, the theme was on martyrdom. We covered the church in Ephesus, which we're going to kind of readdress here in a little bit. And we are now in the church of Pergamum. You notice it's 65 miles north. Uh, it's 15 miles inland. And why it's important to know is that this church was probably the most famous in the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C. Uh, maybe the most important city in the entire country because this is where the power was held. If I had to have like a modern day way of understanding it in our context, I'd say it's kind of like the Washington, D.C., okay? And there's a few different reasons for that, and we'll kind of unpack that here in a minute. Um, now, at some point in the first century, in the latter part of the first century, Ephesus actually takes over as uh, the, the most uh, the leading city, the most growing city, the most wealthy city. And even though at Ephesus is one of the most, is maybe the most important, everybody knew still that the power was in Pergamum. Now, there's this term called ias gladi, which means right of the sword. According to the Romans, this is the way they would talk about authority in the world, that Caesar, along with his governors, were given the right of the sword. And what that meant is that they carried around literally a double-edged sword. So imagine, a, it wasn't huge, but it was like a medium-sized double-edged sword. And they were given power to execute people at will. So if you were to disobey the authorities for whatever reason or not bow down to a certain emperor, right, they were able to take uh, capital punishment into their own hands and had the right to take someone's life. And so you can kind of imagine the governor would go back and forth between the three major cities. You've got Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. Right? And this governor had ultimate and total power. And if you remember what we've been talking about, what was happening right, with the emperor at the time, with Domitian, um, there were many Christians who were being murdered. So let's go back to the text. In verse 12, it says, These are the words of him who have the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. 
where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now that's a, that's a kind of scary statement, right? To say that your place where you live, right, I know where you live, and Satan lives there. In fact, Satan has a throne there. That is not a small thing. So let's figure out, what, what does Jesus say that? Why does he mean to sort of make that sort of accusation? Do you notice in the beginning of that passage how Jesus establishes his authority? What does he say? These are the words of who? Him who has the sharp double-edged sword, right? We heard earlier in the vision that there's a double-edged sword coming out of the mouth in the vision. Okay, so we have here Jesus is making a proclamation that Caesar does not have all the power. Where it may seem like Caesar has control and can do and get away with what he wants, Jesus says, I am the one who has the power. But I know where you live. And where you live, Satan has a throne. So I want to show you here. Okay, we have this city um, up, uh, in Pergamum. This is an image of the Acropolis, okay? It's the upper city of Pergamum. You can see just a little bit of it here. You've got the stadium. We'll talk a bit about that there. This is, or, this is where people would watch theater and whatnot, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but this was all built on a, an upper city. It was 1,300 feet higher than the, the, other, the lower city, okay? You'll see here, this is sort of an artist's rendition of what it was like. So you had the upper city, you had, you had many temples, and we'll kind of point to those in a second. You had a massive theater in the middle, a temple in the lower left, temple in the upper left. Um, I've got here, there's a little layout of what that kind of looked like on that hill. And these are really amazing structures, and it's, it's pretty amazing how much um, they've been able to, to uh, dug, dig up in different um, in different digs, and that they actually have in different museums throughout the world. But this is kind of just the best rendering of kind of trying to depict of what it looked like in its prime. Now, I want to tackle each one of these temples because they sort of represent what I think might be what Jesus is trying to say when he says that Satan has his throne. So we're going to start with the Temple of Athena. Okay, and this was on the back side. We didn't see it on that picture, but it's on the back side of the upper city. And it is the uh, oldest temple on the Acropolis, and, and Athena's statue was 10 feet tall. It was found in an archaeological excavation. She was the patron deity of the city. She was the goddess of war and the goddess of wisdom. In fact, the second largest library in the world behind Alexandria is here in Pergamum because she is the goddess of wisdom. That was sort of what she represented. And it wasn't just wisdom. She was also the goddess of applying that wisdom and how one would live their life. So draw the connection with me, right? John is writing his gospel, and he's writing to the people in the province of Asia, which is where Pergamum is in. And in that gospel, he records at one point, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, everyone in the Greco-Roman world would have taken that to understand, oh, you're talking about Athena. Right? This is, is that who you're talking about? Because that's what Athena was. She was wisdom that led to life. And so the oldest temple in Pergamum, I think, is actually a pretty good candidate for Satan's throne. Right? It was a place where people would go and worship a false god. Now another would be Zeus's altar. Okay, we have to go down a little bit, and we have Zeus's altar. Um, and what you see here 
um, almost all of the pieces of this altar have been able to been, have been saved, and they actually exist in a museum in Berlin. The altar is 117 feet wide, it's 110 feet deep, and 40 feet tall. It's four stories, and the imagery um, that's going around, you see all the little imagery that goes around on the walls, is depicting the battles and wars of the gods and, and the titans. And because it is an altar to Zeus, it is depicting the fact that Zeus is king of kings, lord of lords. He's the god of the gods. He's the supreme ruler of all creation. And in the scriptures, what do you have as a description for Satan? He's the chief of the demons, right? The supreme ruler of the air. The chief of the gods is Zeus. So you can see now how this connection is made. Even, even this depiction almost seems less of an altar, almost like a throne. Another good candidate for Satan's throne. Now there's another one. We'll go to the highest part um, of the city. I'll go back here a few slides. That's Trajan's temple. Okay? He was the emperor of Rome from 98 AD to 100, or, or sorry, 98 to 17 AD. And it's um, the most... Uh, so when you take all the Roman emperors, okay, this is actually built from one of the very first Roman emperors. You'll probably recognize the name. When they, when they would come to the throne, they granted each city in the province of Asia um, a chance to build a place where you could go and just worship the emperor. I want you to imagine if we were to create a building in Wichita where you would go and you would worship a government official. That's kind of a weird idea for us to understand. But every, every group had a right to build one of these temples. And the first temple of emperor worship in the entire world was here in Pergamum. And it has not been found in any archaeological excavation. But it has been depicted on coins. Maybe you've heard of this. Right? This is Caesar Augustus. By the way, Caesar Augustus was the first one um, that was called, as an emperor, a divine son of God. Both human and divine obviously, right, a false god. And we see even in earlier documents that there was uh, remissions of sins and there, it was the heartbeat of empire worship throughout the entire world that, that they would take emperors as places where you could literally go and worship them. So perhaps Trajan's temple was the throne of Satan. Now there's one more. Uh, Dionysus was the god of wine. It was the god of theater, the god of um, all kinds of uh, excess. And I've got a uh, picture here of the um, amphitheater. You can see this. Uh, this was a theater that you could speak, the way it was designed with the hill, you could speak without a microphone, no amplification, and yet everyone would be able to hear you. And so if you think about Dionysus, he was the god who was the god of excess, the god of sin, if you will. And in fact, in Greek mythology, Dionysus is killed and is actually resurrected. And so when John is writing the Gospel of John, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Again, once again, if you were in this church, or if you're in the place in Pergamum, you might be recollected to the god Dionysus. So we have four different examples in the church of Pergamum of potential places where Jesus is saying, look, Satan lives here. There is worship that is happening that is not of God, but is in fact satanic. Now, 
If you go back to the text in verse 12, the angel of the Pergamon writes, these are the words of him, the double-edged sword. Uh, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So we're going to unpack the text now. I'm going to try and go verse by verse, and I, and I want to just sort of demonstrate and show where we see, I think, six observations from the text. Um, I think about Wichita. We have a pretty good reputation. Um, it's low cost of living. We've got a, a brand new stadium, which is pretty nice. It's, it looks really pretty when you drive by. Um, we've got some cool things happening in the city that I th- I'm pretty excited about. But imagine if um, we heard a word from God that says, this is also where Satan lives. All the beauty of Pergamum, their temples and their, their incredible architecture and the fact that it was built in such a glorious manner, all of that, and yet Satan lived there. Pergamum was famous for the reason of Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, that there was actually worship of an emperor. So underneath that, right, it's not just some egomaniac Roman emperor for the people to come and worship him. That's part of it. But underneath that, we see the work of Satan. Now, this is an interesting dynamic because we often, when we talk about Satan, we, we sort of get a little nervous. I think it has to do with the, the spiritual world being something that we don't fully understand. Today, we would call this idea spiritual warfare. And it's manifesting itself, right, in the form of emperor worship. So that's the context. Uh, I'm going to keep reading. He says, You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, here's where Jesus brings the rebuke. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have, t- uh, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Who has an ear, let him listen what the Spirit says to the churches. Now the first thing I will note, my first observation is the first thing we get in this letter is, in fact, the truth of Christ. It begins this way because when he says things like double-edged sword, it invokes a theme we see out throughout the entire scriptures. For example, um, we get these like metaphorical, apocalyptic images, and they're, they're, they're not meant to be taken as literal necessarily, but of a symbol of something else. So we have... Um, uh, Hebrews 4 verses 12, the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to penetrate bone and marrow, able to expose the thoughts and intentions of the heart whom all of us must give an account. You have Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's discussion of spiritual warfare, the sword of the spirit. Okay, multiple times throughout the New Testament, we're seeing this idea of a sword as a representation of God's truth. So I believe the first thing that Jesus wants us to know is that he is the Christ of truth. Now, when we say that, what does that mean for us? I think it, that word has increasingly less value um, in today's culture. We live in a time that's post-modernity, that some sociologists are saying we're moving into a post-post-modernity, which another sermon. Um, but many people, when we, t- we talk about what influence post-modernity has on our culture, one of the things that gets lost is this idea of truth. 
right? You've heard many times people say things like, well, I have my truth, okay? As if their truth is somehow separate from ultimate truth. And that's something that's kind of difficult to articulate. And we see this this seismic shift in our culture where things that were once understood to be true now sort of are lost in sort of this chaos. Jesus identifies himself as coming to him with a sharp, double-edged sword. He is saying, I am coming with a truth, a reality, an ultimate reality. And truth shows up. That's the first observation, the truth of Christ. The second is in verse 13. It tells us that God is all-knowing, right? This is a fancy word that we use saying he's omniscient, meaning he knows all things. And if you look at the text, it says, I know where you live. Right? He knows the details of this city. He knows that there are people who are worshiping these gods. He knows that there are people who are alluring people to the temple to worship emperors with prostitutes. Right? He knows the sexual immorality that is happening. He knows that they are eating food that is sacrificed to idols. He knows where all these things are in the same way. God knows where we live. And not just in the sense of that fact that we live in Wichita, Kansas, but he knows where we are. I think that's a comforting thing. To know that Christ knows where we live. To know that Christ knows the intimate details of our lives. Whether maybe you're struggling to make ends meet and pay rents, Jesus knows where you live. Maybe your financial future is in shambles because the market crashes. In that moment, Jesus sees and knows where you live. Or stuck in cycles of shame and addiction, Jesus knows where you live. Or maybe your relationship or your marriage is struggling and on the rocks, but yet you project this image of perfection. Jesus sees that and he knows that. There's nothing that surprises him. Or maybe the struggle of loneliness Longing to be in relationship, but struggling with that feeling of being lost. Jesus knows our heartaches, our failures, and our temptations. This is comforting because he sees us, and in the midst of seeing us for who we are, he extends grace, mercy, and love. Let's keep reading. God is a God who... um, is a God of truth. He's also a God who sees us, who knows us, who is omniscient. We see in verse 13, there is an enemy. Satan has his throne. So we now encounter, right, in this passage, the enemy of Christ. Um, C.S. Lewis has some observations on this idea that evangelical Christians tend to make two mistakes, Okay. On one end, we, we treat Satan like he's some sort of image or metaphor or theory, or that he's not an actual being, but rather some way of understanding sin and brokenness in the world. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Right? On the opposite side, Lewis says, there's another error where we become so obsessed with the spiritual world that we become, uh, we think there's a devil underneath every rock. And every mis- mistake we made, we say, well, the devil made me do it. Right? There's almost this obsession with the evil world. Lewis writes, They themselves are equally pleased, they, meaning the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. 
Lewis is pointing out that in both instances, we're missing the reality of what we would call spiritual warfare that is alive and active. And a huge part of the book of Revelation is to pull back the curtain and show us what is happening in the spiritual world. And so I would ask you um, an honest question. Where, where are you with that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a spiritual battle, an unseen battle going that we can't fully see or understand? Where are you in that? Because I think it's a mistake for us to completely just say, you know what, I, I, I just think that that's all a bunch of made-up fairy tale stuff. I think we, we miss out on understanding the reality of the Christian life and Christian walk. Now, the good news is that we have the truth of Christ. We have the omniscience of Christ. We have the, the identity of the enemy, right, has been identified for us. And back to the text, he says, you did not you renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, he was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Who is Antipas? Well, I wish I had an answer for you. We don't have anything from the Bible. Um, there are certain scholars who would suggest that, yes, because the text tells me he was, he was martyred for his faith. And we can infer that it was probably because he referred or refused to bow down to the emperor. He refused to do the thing that he was required, and he held strong in the faith, similar to what we looked at two weeks ago in the church of Smyrna, where Jesus commends that church for their faithful witness to Christ, even in the face of death. After this affirmation, um, we see the rebuke. Um, you see it, uh, verses 14, 15, and 16. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there. Um, uh, you have, you've got people in your midst who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Maybe you recognize that name. Um, there's a bit, bit of debate about what this means. What is the, what is the teachings of Balaam? Um, if you've read Numbers 22, 23, or 24, you may have read about this prophet Balaam. Um, he was a bit of a complicated character. You may have heard the story of the talking donkey. The Old Testament's got some really funny stories. One of them is this talking donkey who is speaking to him as God is trying to get his attention. Okay, we, I think there's been a few children's sermons on it um, time and time again. Um, you've got uh, Balaam has cursed God and cursed the Israelites, but uh, it, there's this whole moment where Balaam is used to undercut and undermine the integrity of God's people. Eventually, they're enticed to participate with prostitutes among the Moabites. There's all kinds of complicated history with Balaam. And so exactly what it is that, that they're referring to here, we're not exactly sure. Uh, but one of the things I mentioned earlier was that these temples um, were filled with prostitutes. And these prostitutes were like, um, like at our church, we may offer someone a gift basket. But come to church, we'll give you a gift basket. But back then it was like, no, there are prostitutes waiting for men who would come to the church. And that was their way of enticing them to come and worship these emperors. So when Jesus is saying your sexual immorality, he is talking about this reality, what was happening in this city. This was how they promoted growth in their temples. Now, the Nicolaitans were also heretics, um, teaching false doctrines. And essentially, I'm, I'll, I'll summarize it this way. Um, not everybody in church falls into these traps, but you, follow up, you, you uh, tolerate the people that do. In other words, in these churches, there was no accountability. So you had leaders of these churches who were also dabbling in all kinds of sin, whether it was drunkenness, whether it was engaging with prostitutes, whether it was teaching false doctrines. There was no accountability 
that existed for many of these teachers. Um, we here at Eastminster, we, we teach a, a historic Reformed theology, right? There are marks of the true church. There are certain uh, faithful preaching of the word of God, a, a proper administration of the sacraments. We exercise biblical church discipline. And there's a reason why these things are so important. And it's because historically, right, people who are put in positions to pastor and to lead oftentimes um, can go astray. They're human and make mistakes. And because that is a reality, we have to have accountability in place. You can't tolerate that kind of thing from church leadership, which is why if I or one of our pastors were to step out of line and have a moral failure or teach false doctrines, we would be held accountable by our elders, by our congregation. That is a part of what makes the church be able to sustain long term. If you do not deal with that, that can become like a cancer and absolutely destroy the church. Whatever the case may be, we don't sweep that under the rug but we have accountability and we address it and we deal with those kinds of things. Jesus is telling the church of Pergamum, look, you have to have accountability. You have to hold your leaders accountable. The problem with Pergamum is that they weren't doing these things. And so Jesus comes in and he does it himself. And finally, after this affirmation and after the rebuke comes this great promise. We see this in verse 17. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give a white stone with a name on it, only known to him who receives it. Okay, I need to backtrack for a minute here. Because, you know, Paul doesn't say to Timothy um, 3.16 that the church is the pillar and foundation of tradition, preference, biblical, historical precedent, and personal tastes. Right? That's not what Paul says to Timothy. He says the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And let me tell you a little bit why I think that's a difficult thing for us to sort of get our mind around in our cultural moment. I've got two observations, and these are sort of my own personal observations about Christianity in its current cultural moment, okay? We have four things I think of happening, and I've got these from a book called Good Faith, David Kinnaman. It's a great read. Um, the first is that Christianity is moving from the center to the fringe. Whereas church buildings, beautiful church cathedrals were oftentimes the center of cities. They were the central gathering point for people to meet and worship together. They are now, many of those buildings empty and many churches are moving away from the center of public life and more towards the margins. Where this has happened in other places in the world, we're seeing it beginning to happen here in the United States. We see it moving from public to private. What do I mean by that? Where once faith was a very public thing, we saw it in many public ways, whether it was on television, in the media, or whether it was in politics, or in the schools, or whatnot. It was very much a part of our academic institutions. That is no longer always the case. This is a, just an example, and it's sort of a, a, a harsh example, but a high-level presidential candidate was asked their, his opinion on abortion. He said privately, he was a Catholic, I am against abortion because of my Catholic faith. But publicly, women have the right to choose. Right? It's a strange thing to, in one sense, privately hold to a conviction, 
right? But publicly not be able to because of the way in which culture has changed and moved in our current climate. The third is from strange to a threat, okay? And one time in our history, right, Christianity was kind of odd, right? You believe in a resurrection? What's that? You believe that um, there, there are demons in a spiritual world. You, you believe in a, a a really strict sexual ethic. Like, what are these weird things you believe in? And whereas one one point in life, like, these were seen as strange, they are now being looked at by many people as actual threats, as Christianity being dangerous, as your belief on whatever you can name your political um, uh, idea or social idea as being something that is bigotry or uh, threatening or dangerous to someone else. We're seeing this shift happen in real time. Christians were being defined, the words that were used uh, in this study in David Kinnaman's book as either irrelevant, so having no meaning uh, really for the culture, or as extreme. Those are two pretty wild extremes. You're either irrelevant or you're an extremist. So that creates a fear. And lastly, from tolerance to penalization. We're seeing this happen um, where many of our, I think, our private universities are starting to lose a lot of government support. One of the main things that's keeping a lot, a lot of them afloat is being taken away. It's possible that in the future, churches lose some of their tax benefits. These are all real things that I know our session and staff have, have considered as we prepare for the future, um, where there was sort of a tolerance and, a, and a, almost like a, a, a social capital for those who would identify as a Christian now many are seeing the opposite take place. Now, this cultural shift is happening. It's been happening for some time, um, and it's accelerating. And I think one of the things that we learn from Jesus' word to the church in Pergamum is that in the midst of changing culture, we cannot compromise on God's truth. And that's a challenge. Because there's something lost when you choose to believe in God's truth in a social way that can sometimes be difficult. So one way of putting it is if you go and look at the uh, church in Ephesus, right? If the church of Ephesus was guilty of elevating truth above love, I think the church of Pergamum maybe could be held guilty as a church that held love above truth. That there was sort of this emphasis on... um, Letting the little things go, right? The, 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 maybe a little bad teaching here, a little bit of sexual sin here, a little bit of eating food that you shouldn't be eating here, and sort of this uh, allowing for this licentious behavior to happen that over time Jesus has concern. Now, <clears throat> there's a second observation that I have. and This is, when we talk about culture, okay, we oftentimes use language, or I've heard language that culture is somehow seen as this threat, okay? It's sort of this siege threat, like there's, that we need to sort of wage war against the culture. You may hear this from time to time. And I think that siege mentality can lead to a sort of fear-mongering and a, and a sort of tribalism and anger and desperation that I don't think is helpful. The truth is this, and this is what we don't often see, is that the culture is not something that we're worrying against. The culture has already formed us. We just don't even realize it. 
And that's part of the challenge I think we all face is to identify the ways in which culture has already begun to form us, whether that's movement towards materialism and success and wealth and upward mobility and the American dream that has been ingrained into our, this is what it means to be a thriving person in society, rather than looking at the purpose and meaning of what, who we're supposed to be in the kingdom of God and the ethics of Jesus. God's truth confronts all of this, and it challenges us. There's this great story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he was a, a, a genius theologian. Karl Barth said that he read one of his essays when he was 21 years old and said he is going to be one of the greatest thinkers of all time. This guy was so smart that at a really young age, he began to train pastors, and he created what was something like a seminary. And during that time, as he's training these pastors, he wrote two books. You may have heard of them, Life Together, um, The Cost of Discipleship. He's writing these incredible works of theology. And as he's discipling and training these pastors, there's this young historian by the name of Wilhelm Niesel who heard of Bonhoeffer, questioned him, and said, why are you doing this? Like, go back to the academy. You're so smart. You're wasting it on this extreme, uh, weird Christian thing. Why do you feel the need to do all this crazy stuff? And so Bonhoeffer said, come with me. And they got in a boat, and they rowed across this body of water to this hill, and he took him up to the hill, and he, he pointed out in the distance lines of um, German soldiers who were being trained by Hitler and who were going through this process of being brainwashed and, 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 and working. You could tell they were so in sync and formed and so much energy and effort went into every last detail. And he said to Willem, he said, you see what's going on here? You see those soldiers being trained in the Third Reich? What we're doing back there has to be stronger than what they're doing here. Because if we aren't training our young people, if we aren't teaching them the truth of God, then this is what the future is going to be. A vision of Jesus' discipleship in our culture has to be stronger than the incoming cultural storm that I believe is here and is only going to get worse. And so I think in, in all of our ways in which we think about life and Christian discipleship, we have to be reminded that this is so important. The cost of discipleship is so important. Our formation of truth of Christ has to be stronger than what's coming. So in closing, I'll ask just a couple questions. Are you a Pergamum Christian? Do you want the truth? Right, because I know the truth can be difficult. Whatever the cost, whatever the price, whatever the emotion or conscience that might be convicted, do you want the truth? And lastly, I'll close, that there, he, he has the promise uh, in, the, in the text. Um, I don't know what the white stone is. Uh, there, there are like three different commentaries that I've read that had different opinions about it. Um, one of them is, is that uh, a judge in the first century, when, when he acquitted someone of a crime, he'd put a little white stone in a box, and that was a symbol that you could go free. Maybe that's what John's referring to. There's a theory that the white stone, uh, if you're an athlete in the first century and you do really well, the city gives you um, a, a stone. It's, it's, a, it's like a key to the city. Um, you have free access to like entertainment and all kinds of things if you're a successful athlete. The other, the other theory I read about was that it was the breastplate of the high priest, Aaron, in the book of Exodus, right? Got 12 stones and he's got that thing for wisdom. Um, maybe that's it. I, I don't know, right? Some of the symbolism 
I think, is left to interpretation. And I don't know exactly what the hidden manna is either. Maybe it's God's provision in heaven. Um, it's the food we, we see that's eaten when you're wandering in the wilderness. Um, in Hebrews chapter 9, it tells us they took some of that um, manna and they put it in a golden jar. And they put the jar in the ark so that God's people would always remember that God provides uh, even in adversity. Right? Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it is a symbol of God providing for us for eternity. I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that I'm going to die. And that every single one of us one day will face death. Unless Jesus comes back, all of us will face death at some point. And I think Jesus ends this letter by drawing our attention away from the immediate pressing needs of the moment and says, look to the future. One day your life will end and then eternity. We are called to live a life in view of eternity because life is too short. And so at the end of the letter, I think it's just interesting that Jesus doesn't point to the martyrdom of Antipas. He doesn't point to um, the uh, temples in Pergamum, but instead he points to eternity. I'm born, I live, I die. That time in between, the life that we have is all we have. And so I ask you, do you have a bucket list? Are there things that you want to do before you die? And maybe we could think about what does a reoriented bucket list look like that Jesus calls us to? How do we want to live in the time that we have? I know that Jesus is our greatest reward. And if we know that, if we really believe that, if that goes from our head to our heart, how then does that change the way we live every day? So let us live without compromise, trusting in the truth of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray we would take these words to heart to understand that we don't have forever. But you've given us time on this earth to hear your words, to put them into action, to learn how to love our neighbors, to learn how to love those who are um, far from you, who are desperate, who are hurting, who are oppressed, who are poor, to help us to um, live in the way of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would take discipleship seriously, that we would understand the cost that whenever we are faced with um, lies from the evil one, that we would be able to discern that that is not of you, but that is of the devil, that we would be able to be led not into temptation, but be led in the ways of righteousness. And so, God, we invite you into our life. We invite you into the life of this church, that you would challenge us, that you would have words for Eastminster that maybe make us uncomfortable, that push us out of our comfort zones, and that make us more faithful followers of you. Lord, I pray all of these things for your beautiful name. In Jesus' name, amen.